You're listening to Improving Business, where personal and business finance take a front row seat. I'm Brandon. And this is Rick. And today we'll be talking about executing a strategy that will send your new company into orbits. Have you ever booked a vacation on orbits? Did you ever wonder how that easy-to-use business got off the ground? Uh, it was well known uh, at the time uh, for being very revolutionary. And today we'll talk about a few quick strategies using this amazing company uh, as an example that may help you get your dream business off the ground. Uh, we'll also be drawing on an article, How to Hedge Your Strategic Bets by George Stock Jr. and Ashish Ayer uh, and the May. <laughs> what? And the May. Trying to pronounce some of these names. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Ashish Iyer, Iyer, George Stalk Jr., um, in the May 2016 Harvard Business Review. So Orbitz, for those of you who are a little younger or maybe who don't do a lot of um, uh, booking of travel on your own, uh, was a website that used to book flights, uh, cruises, hotel rooms, car rentals, and vacation packages, you know, the whole thing. And it was really one of the first, at least um, one of the first successful ones. It started in 2001 uh, during an airline economic downturn by the five major carriers, uh, Delta, United, Continental, and American. You know, and there, There's a good example of competitors. Competitors uh-huh. coming together with a joint strategy that benefited all of them. Yeah, because the, there was such a downturn that they had to do something or else go broke. Right, and you know, you, you see that um, uh, it, when you go to orbits, you know, they give you all these options, different airlines, mm-hmm. and so you know, they all have an equal type of way of just driving yeah. you to their site. Parity. Um, it was said to have the fastest search engine at the time, uh, which, which was designed by MIT. Uh, no slouch in the technology and uh, programming departments. Yeah, but I bet you I really uh, pissed off CI, uh, Caltech, huh? Oh, very much so. <laughs> um, and Orbitz, on its first day opening, sold $3.3 million worth of tickets. Uh, and 5,000 people registered on its website the first day. Uh, and in year two, it wasn't uh, that much of a slouch either. It had $2.5 billion in ticket sales uh, in its second year of operation. You know, I remember reading that 70% of the revenue comes from ticket sales, you know, not from all these other things like hotels and mm-hmm. and that because, you know, they, they control the means of production there on the airlines. That's yeah, why they would get all their income there. Like for if they're booking for like, um, uh, let's say, um, Marriott, then, you know, Marriott's going to get a, the biggest lion's share of a cut and they're just going to get a little commission. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, the company was no slouch in any respect. It went public in 2003, two years after it opened. And um, then it was purchased by sort of the next big thing in travel, Expedia, in uh, last year, 2015. The reason why we're bringing up Orbitz is because they did something very unusual. What they did is these airlines went outside their current business model. So they didn't bring this thing into Delta Airlines, or they didn't bring it into American Airlines, you know, the specific uh, legal corporate structure. Yeah, Instead, just revamping their website for tickets. That's yeah, right, not what right. they did. Click, <laughs> click the little ticket. Like, like, it would be like the little paper clip. Remember the paper yeah. clip? Oh, my God, Clippy. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, he was the worst. I, I think that turned out to be one of the worst um, ideas in Microsoft it history. It, oh, and uh, that's saying a lot. <laughs> 
it was a, oh yeah so you would have a little ticket that kind of go across the american airlines uh, you know hey book me book me first you got to catch me yeah <laughs> He's chasing it make it a game with gamify a, it yeah with with, a, with your mouse you know so anyway so this was outside their current uh enterprise and uh, the reason why is because if you have uh for example if you have outside investors like there were outside investors you know these were all different companies well, you really don't want them investing in your company. And I run into this problem a lot in the film industry. Uh, most large companies, and, and probably even most of your independent companies, when they start a new film, they will open up a separate company. They won't do it under their production company. So mm -hmm. they'll have five films, five different companies. And one of the reasons why is that you know, the entertainment attorneys will tell you is that it limits their liability, so like if they run into problems legally on one film, it doesn't uh, take away. Yeah, they don't. The they don't film. take the whole uh, studio from out under them. Right, and the second thing is that um, many of these independent film companies that I have as clients, um, they have investors for one film, and they, but they may do five films, so they don't want them to invest inside this company that uh, they would be an equity ownership in this one company that has five films, but they would have them invest into another company. Where they would just have ownership in that one film. Yeah, that makes sense. So then, so that's one thing is you you know you want to be wise and keep things things separate. So looking outside your company and, and starting an outside company. Another thing you can do is is that you may want to hire temporary help, or subcontract to another company. So you know what it's like to train people. I mean, it's just, yeah, it takes a long time, and if they quit, you lose all that effort right. and money. Yes. And and so you 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 know, you you're like six months training, but let's say you you subcontract them to a company that's already somewhat in this industry, and you leave them to train the employees, and then you know that that gives your ramp up time much quicker. Yeah, and and, it, and it's usually cheaper too because mm -hmm. you you're not having to have your management or what have you learn a whole bunch of new skills and go to a whole bunch of. Uh, conferences and and retraining uh, just in order to do this when you can just subcontract it out, right? And also is that uh, if the venture doesn't work, well then you got a lot of unemployment claims, you got maybe even grievances from mm -hmm. employees, you know, all these different things that can happen. So this way, if you're hiring outside for this project until it gets off the ground, you're really limiting your exposure, even if it may be a little more expensive. You're limiting a lot of your exposure uh, different ways. Another way is, uh, is there's, there's benefits uh, that you have here, um, such as uh, no long-term costs. That's one. Any of others, uh, Brandon? Uh, you can test a concept in the marketplace without as much risk because everything's so divided like we talked about. Right, right. And uh, the biggest thing I can think of is that um, – because you're not having your management or your employees relearn other skills, it's not going to upset your core business operation. Mm -hmm. So because you're essentially subcontracting it out or starting a new company, uh, the work is separated and it's not going to – even if that new company doesn't do as well, it's not going to affect how your other company is working. You know, I've seen that before. Companies that are taken off into a new industry, a new venture mm – -hmm. And what ends up happening sometimes is that new venture ends up losing money, and the core competency competency part of the company is financing the new one. Oh yeah, you know, and and they're just like it's like it becomes shoveling a shoveling money into a furnace of a sinking ship. <laughs> yeah. So that's the first thing that you might want to do when you have a a um, an initial 
a venture uh, that you're starting out. Uh, there's another one we want to throw at you guys, and that is is that um, that you may want to leverage the strength and opportunities of your core business to expand into complementary markets. Yeah, for example, even though the companies are going to be separate for financial reasons, that doesn't mean you can't you know use resources between them. For example, uh, you have a, a network of customers and suppliers. Mm-hmm. You can just you know right, say we're starting this new company. All the suppliers are lined up, and you'll know who to contact with new deals for this new company. Right. So I mean, and everybody has those rolodexes of mm-hmm. suppliers and customers. Oh my gosh, dating yourself. <laughs> I just like that name, Rolodex. It's a great name. It rolls right off the tongue. But um, contact lists. Let's just say that. Okay. That'll go. That goes with all different types of technology. Now, you know why it was called a Rolodex, right? I Well, I get the roll part because it was circle. It was like it was shaped like a circle and it right, would turn right. it. Yeah, I mean, not all, Dex, them like though, like not, all of them are like that. Not all of them are like that, you know, but the original ones was where you just flip through them like you're turning a wheel. Mm-hmm. And that's a roll. Yeah, so. yeah but what's, what's the Dex? The, <laughs> Dexterity? Because it's on, a, I don't know, because it's on a sinking ship. I have no idea. Uh, yep, yep, there it is. So, anyway, so use your relationships uh, like your distribution networks too. You know, maybe you may not be uh, a direct uh, connection to somebody, but you could go to your distributors and say, hey, I'm looking on distributing this complimentary type of product or service. Uh, who do you know uh, can help me get this thing out there? And that would work really well. But there are benefits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your business may have contacts and suppliers that you can use as a launch pad for your new business, not only for your new business to use, but you can sort of um, have your suppliers uh, and contacts tell people about your business, right? Mm-hmm. They have their own connections, and because they work with you with your parent company, they may want to help out this new venture and get some brownie points. Uh-huh. And also is that you know you also have a jump on your competitors. Because if you have the small company that's kind of under the radar and mm-hmm. you're testing the waters and you're making your mistakes on a small level, then when you're ready to really roll this out, and you know there is a strategy actually of rolling things out very quickly and mm-hmm. getting them up very quickly. Um, just, just like they did. I mean, that yeah. in, it's incredible but that they had millions of dollars of sales in their first day. Yes. Like that's that's crazy. Yeah. Most businesses that are starting take you know a couple years to get up to um, to, right. to in the black. Right, it's like your uh, grandpa when he started his playing business with his uh, partner Dan. Yeah, and they, so sat in grandma's uh, kitchen. Right, annoying her. <laughs> That's right, with his partner smoking a cigar and just sitting there looking at the phone, waiting for it to ring. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> didn't even read a newspaper. And she kicked him out. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was bad did. enough for them being in there. But being in her kitchen with a cigar, that wasn't going to work for Grandma. No. <laughs> uh, the, the third way that, that really if you want to start uh, a new business and, and getting it off the ground is you really have to look at your long-term benefits and calculate them to in, in, with clarity. A lot of people will sit here and they'll do a business plan and they'll have all the expenses down. And they'll say, well, yeah, we expect we're going to be having like uh, 30% uh, – business in the first three months and then 60% by the of capacity by the second three months. And you know, cause I've done business plans and this is what they tell me. Mm-hmm. They don't really look at 
the future of revenue and say, okay, what is it that we're going to make and why? You know, what? How much are we going to make? What markets are we going to tap? What's They're always focusing on what it's going to cost them rather on what the, it's going to make. I mean, yeah, because right. most people are used to trying to cut costs for their business and get that. Um, but that's the problem with having a new company is you have to make sure that what you're going to make is going to be as profitable as your old one. Right. And you know what? When I talk to clients and they say, okay, so we're going to put $2 million into this, you know, let's do a business plan. What mm -hmm. I usually tell them is that it's probably going to cost you 50 to 100% more than what you're putting in there. Yeah. And the reason why is not because of the cost, as you said, it's because they're so optimistic that revenue is going to come in on day one. You know, yeah, they, not everyone's going to be orbits. Yeah, that's right. Everybody thinks they're going to be orbits. So it, it really is, it really discourages the investment. And, you know, that's when I was reviewing a, um, a business plan for a client who's an actor, and he wanted to invest in this music venue in uh, the L.A. area. And he really wanted to invest in it because it used to be around in the old days. But, uh, but what happened was it went, went under, and then these new investors came in 30 years later, and they wanted to bring it back to life. So he showed me the business plan. And as I went through the business plan, the first thing that popped up that really upset me was that the people who were launching this thing were getting all of their investment out in the first nine months. Mm -mm. And so That's I told bad. him, yeah, I told him, I said, if, if you're going to invest in this, these people who are investing money, they're going to be the last ones to get their money out. And Yeah, because otherwise they're just yeah. cutting and running. So my client did not invest in this company. Um and it did open, and I walked by it 12 months later, and it was shut down. It was closed. Of <laughs> it course was it was. Yeah. And so, you know, he didn't lose his money, which was great. Maybe he looked like a hero, but, you know, it wasn't a hard thing to see. You know, it's just a logical thing. If, if somebody thinks it's so risky, they're going to take their money out as soon as, as soon as it comes in. You don't want to be in it. So it also helps, you know, to give a, a better idea when you're looking at your revenue of what the risk rewards is. If you really do this correctly and you you have a good uh, projection of what your revenue is going to be, uh, you know, a lot of people they'll do is they'll do like minimum, uh, maximum, and somewhere in between. They'll do like three scenarios. Mm -hmm. So if, if I was going to start a new business, what I would do is use the minimum scenario, the minimum, the least optimistic for my business plan. So this way I know what my risk reward is. And if it's better than that, fantastic. Yeah. You're listening to Improv Inc. Business, where personal and business finance take a front row seat. We'd like to thank our sponsor today, Rick E. Norris and Accountancy Corporation, for helping support the show. And if you have any emails or questions that you want to send us, as other people have been sending them in, uh, send them to rick at improvingbusiness.com. Uh, that's improv with a hyphen, ing business.com. Now's the time in our show known as our tax tales. Tax tales, tax tales, tax tales, tax tales, tax tales. Tax tales, a woo. Today's tax tale comes from the hard to produce, hard to pronounce, hard to produce, hard to produce. <laughs> I started off saying pronounce wrong, which is always uh, I bet you'll a home run. this airport, right, though. <laughs> uh, my quitcha. I'm going to say 
Maiquetcha International Airport in uh, Caracas um, announced uh, an interesting tax. We talked about the tax um, <laughs> a little bit from Costa Rica, which was an exiting of the country tax, sort of a um, sort of a hostage uh, tax, hostage, hostage tax, tax. <laughs> as, as it were. Um, but uh, there's an even more severe uh, one in Caracas, which is 127 Bolivar, which is around 12 pounds uh, British uh, per person upon departure uh, leaving the airport, just like we talked about in Costa Rica, to cover the cost of a newly installed air purification system. <laughs> the system uh, will, quote, protect the health of travelers and eliminate bacterial growth uh, in the country, of, uh, at least according to the Ministry of Water and Air Transport. Um, not that it stops people from breathing that stuff when they're outside the airport, but okay. Uh <laughs> Some travelers have described this tax as uh, uh, a tax on breathing in the Caracas <laughs> airport. So um, I guess, uh, you know, 12 pounds isn't that much per person. But, uh, you know, either that or hold your breath. Yeah, that's right. You know what? A uh, hundred years ago, and we're laughing about this, about paying yeah. for air. But a hundred yeah. years ago, if you told people that you were paying a dollar for a little bottle of water. Yeah. <laughs> they would think we're nuts. But yeah, a hundred years ago, people didn't know how cholera spread. So <laughs> that was there was the whole thing where people would go to spas, right? Yeah, you know why that worked? No, people would go to spas and they would get better from their ailments because they weren't drinking gross Thames river water that was full of sewage. They would like go to the spring and they drink Thames. normal water and they would not have cholera anymore, or at least feel better. Are you so, picking on London Thames? Yeah, the Thames. I mean, well, you said 12 pounds okay, is what right. it translated to. Okay. Now's the time in our show for our takeaways, where we tell you what concrete steps you can take to implement what we've been talking about on the podcast. And uh, the first is if you're looking to, uh, you know, have a new business venture, open a temporary business outside your core business. Right. Look for the short, uh, short-term investments in facilities and personnel. The second thing is leverage your core business's strength in complementary industries. Yeah. Use your contacts. Um, the third is uh, leverage your core business opportunities. Uh, if you know about something for your uh, business that's an opportunity, it probably will help this nicely dovetail into your new business. And the last point I want to leave you with is to make sure to do good calculations for your long-term benefits uh, and short-term costs because this will help you on your business plan and help you get realistic about how long you should go with this venture before you throw in a trash can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't be overly optimistic. You're not everyone's going to be orbits. Uh, if there's one thing you have to take away, it's that sometimes you have to inch a little way down the runway before you can be sure to get your business off the ground. Now it's time to answer some email questions from our listeners. This one comes from Pauline, and uh, she says, I heard last week's podcast on the Airbnb frauds. Thanks for listening. I want to book a rental through TripAdvisor's holiday lettings, but the owner doesn't want me to pay through them, pay through uh, the holiday lettings site. Uh, mm -hmm. What should I do? You know. Pull the cord. Pull the rip cord. <laughs> you know, how old am I now? Let's see. So that would be... <laughs> After I have to do the math here, 50, about 50, 50, no, 40 years ago, about 40, 45 years ago, when mm -hmm. uh, we used to rent in Lake Tahoe to go skiing as teenagers, like 16, 17 years old, things like that. 
We used to just, you know, call somebody up and they say, yeah, you know, send us a check and we'll have the key waiting for you under the pot or, you know, and we just drive over there and we get the key and you know, we rent the, you know, the cabin. That was it. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, I guess probably had a contract of some sort, but, but the point was, is that it was not a big deal. You know, I mean, there really wasn't a lot of fraud going on back then that I was aware of. Well, there was a lot of fraud, but it was, we, 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 we know people who's, who knew uh, con men back then. Yeah, true, <laughs> true. But uh, today, I tell you, with this online booking, mm-hmm. you got to have extra, extra due diligence. And so what I suggest is that you really stick with the program. Stick with uh, Airbnb, uh, stick with uh, holiday, you know, TripAdvisor, holiday uh, lettings, um, because they all have guarantees. If, yeah. if you um, get cheated, if you show up, and the place is not what they said it was going to be like. Or there's no place Or there's there. no place. Then the only problem you have is just finding a place. You're going to get your money back. you know. Mm-hmm. But if you do it through somebody individually, there's nobody there to protect you. Mm-mm. I mean, you know, you could take them to court, but you're, that's in another state usually or another country. <laughs> yeah. and It's, uh, it's always a problem yeah. with people trying to get you to pay under the table to yeah. avoid taxes, to avoid um, fees, uh, the the problem is that you have to pay a little more fees or taxes. Uh, you know, Airbnb gets their cut, yeah. but you're assured of not being cheated out of your money. Yeah. Whereas if you're paying things under the table, because already what you're doing is kind of shady or illegal in some cases, um, <laughs> then you, there's no protections. Well, you know how it works is that the, the why you're paying Airbnb and travel advisor more is because the people who are really paying them are the lessors. All right, but they have to bump up the rates in order to cover the piece, the large piece that they're giving to Airbnb or uh, travel, uh, travel mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And also, why why they're able to protect you is because um, you're not going to lose your money. And the reason why you're not going to lose your money is because when you pay Airbnb or when you pay um, uh, TripAdvisor, for example, they will hold your money in an escrow account until you check in. Yep, you don't. They don't get the money till you that's get right. the keys. And that's the thing that upsets owners and why they don't use them because they said, "Hey, I'm not going to wait four months to get my money." And and all of a sudden you bow out. But then again, in uh, there's uh, I lose my money if uh, if I were to uh, book through um, uh, TripAdvisor uh, in a four month reservation, I'll lose my yeah. money. So if you if you if paid. you back out of it, yeah, yeah. So anyway. Uh, you know, be careful. Is, yeah, be careful. <laughs> um, don't don't be uh, sweet talked by anybody. Um, you know, use the facilities that are out there and the structures that are there to protect you. That's all we have for today's show. Tune in next week when we'll talk about entrepreneurship and strategy. Do they have to be enemies in your small business? Hopefully not. Uh, but until then, uh, thanks for listening. I'm Brandon, and this is Rick. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening. Bye. Our music for this podcast was composed and produced by Devin S. Norris. If you like what you hear and would like to have custom music for any of your projects, contact him at devinsnorris.com.